Uh, we are drawing to a close in our series in Galatians uh, chapter 5. Uh, last week, or was it two weeks ago? It was two weeks ago. Ryan led us through the first three. Love, joy and peace. Those that bring inner fruitfulness that overflow into our Christian lives. And the week before, Neil took us through the three in the middle. Patience, kindness and goodness. Relational fruit. These fruit that leads to uh, fruit in our relations with people, Christians and non-Christians. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to look at the final three. It's not the end in our series. I believe we have one or two after this, Neil, don't we? Um, But uh, we're going to look at the final three fruits that we'll spend our time considering. Faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And these fruits, I suppose what you could say with these ones, with the other two you had what they are related to, well, today's one, are countercultural in their fruitfulness. They will lead us to be different, uh, to be uh, distinct from the people around us. See, Paul believed that the Holy Spirit could lead the Galatian church and can lead me and you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, in living countercultural lives. And that's what I pray for me, for you today. That's what I pray as we leave these doors, that we be different, we be distinct for God's glory, for God's good and for the good of us and for the people around us. So why don't we pray? If you are turning, we're in Galatians chapter five, uh, but I'll pray and then we will read God's word together. Father God, thank you for this book. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for both the Old and the New Testament and the picture, the story, the reality that we see of God's faithfulness to us from beginning to end. And Father, I pray that as we, as we hear your word today, as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, in his faithfulness from beginning to end, that we will be um, enamoured, uh, look at his beauty, look at what he's done for us and just love you more for your faithfulness to your, the Father, Jesus and then your faithfulness to completing the work, saving us, bringing us closer to God. Um, and I pray that we will be moved, we'd be changed this afternoon. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. Let me read verse 16, and then I'll jump down to verse 22, and we'll read 22 through to the end of 24. But I say, this is Paul speaking, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Very short passage. Um, with so much depth in it. I enjoyed a few weeks ago, and probably more than a few weeks ago, actually. Uh, I enjoyed the Commonwealth Games. Did anyone else watch the Commonwealth Games as it was on? Matt, not interested in athletics or anything like that. It was incredible. It was a great watch. Commonwealth Games was really, really good to watch in the summer. I especially enjoy watching the para-athletes, uh, so the Paralympic uh, athletics. Uh, whilst, the obviously, the able-bodied athletes, they are able to do incredible things. These para-athletes with their disabilities... There's just incredible feats that they manage to do. It's just an incredible watch. The parasport that grabs my attention the most is the impaired sighted runners. Um, has anyone seen them? Um, and you've got the various, they do the exact same thing as the 
the, the, the guys who have normal sight. But what they have is they have somebody that runs alongside them, who guides them, who leads them. Um, now, the fastest in the world at the moment did a bit of research on this. And these weren't at the Commonwealth Games because they aren't part of the Commonwealth. But you've got David Brown and Jerome Avery, the USA pair, um, who hold uh, the world record. I watched a 10-minute documentary on them on YouTube. And uh, they described why they were the best partnership, why they were beating all of the, um, the titles. They were getting all of the, uh, the gold medals everywhere and they were just dominating the sport. And what it came down to was practice. Uh, that brought them both in step with one another. They were in step with one another. Jerome Avery, who was the, the guy who leads um, David um, to win the golds, and he's the one who wins all the accolades, but Jerome helps him along. Um, he said this, our actions should be exact. Uh, we should be hitting the ground with our feet at exactly the same time. Uh, it, he also said it should look like one person running, which I thought was very poignant. And as, he was, as we were watching them on the track together, um, what Jerome was saying to David to keep him in line, he was saying, drive, 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 get up off, you know, when they have to push off the, uh, the starting block, stay in line, stay in line, don't touch the white lines to the side, keep in line, keep on the track. And David Brown said, all I have to focus on is listening to him. All I have to focus on in listening to him. You see, Jerome Avery is probably in that partnership, he's probably the faster runner. Yeah, he's got to be the faster runner. He's got to make sure, or give, um, he's got to give David the opportunity to flourish and reach his potential. Um, he's the one who guides. He's the one who allows Jerome to flourish. And he guides David down this 100-meter track, giving him the signals, giving him the warnings, giving him where to step to encourage him, to push him, and to succeed. And before we dive into these three fruits of the Spirit, I want us to be encouraged this afternoon. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is there with us every step of the way. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is with us in this race. If you know your Bibles well, if you know the New Testament well and Paul's teachings well, Paul compares this race, this life, race, uh, this life to a race, not a sprint, but a marathon. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And what is the prize before we set out looking at these fruits of the Spirit? The prize is the glory of God and our future with him. We want to run hard and we want to run, run well. And even though we have had our eyes opened, if you're a Christian today, you've had your eyes open to the beauty of this gospel. Our eyes are still dim. We're a bit like David. Our eyes are still dim and we need support. Be encouraged this morning, as we said this morning, this afternoon, as we set out and we talk about these three fruits of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, God, is gracious. He's patient. He's gentle. He is self-controlled and he's a faithful guide. He's the best guide that we could ever ask for. Jerome, if, you know, he wasn't a very good guide, he could have pulled and dragged David quicker then his legs could move, but he doesn't. David often would step outside of the running track lines, his feet falling out of step with his guide, maybe failing to hear, maybe even not, uh, you know, listening to his guide at all, maybe at times, because he thinks he, knew, he knows better. But Jerome will persist with David, leading him to be the best Paris sprinter in the world. Now, we're not looking to be the greatest Christians in the world, are we? 
I don't think many of us would say that. We know our flaws, we know our failures. In fact, we know we're far from greatest in the world. But as we hear of these three countercultural fruits of the Spirit, let's be reminded that the Holy Spirit bears with us. He cares for us and that he is for us. He's not against us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more like Jesus. He's guiding us. He is emboldening us to live lives that are going to bear fruit, not for our glory, but for the Father's glory. That's what we want, isn't it? Yes. Amen. That's what we want. But we can't do it without him. So we'll spend the majority of our time focusing on one of these fruits of the Spirit, faithfulness, because that's where we'll see the ability for gentleness and self-control come from. And a reminder that in our faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, our godliness is not the goal. I know Ryan and Neil both have mentioned this in their sermons in the, in the past few weeks. Our godliness is not the goal here. The goal is the glory of God. That's the primary intent with these fruits of the Spirit. So let's look at faithfulness. Let's talk about faithfulness first. It's there on the, uh, the screen for us in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. What is faith? What actually is faith? Now, automatically, when we think of faith, we think of trusting in something, believing in something. Like the chairs that you are all sat on today, you automatically, without thinking, sat on those chairs and they did not break under the various weights. Um, like the chair that you all sat in today, you all showed faith. But faithfulness is more than that, isn't it? Faith is action on faith. Faith is useless if we don't act upon it. That's what faithfulness is. Faith is acting upon faith. That's what Paul is speaking about here in this passage. The fruit of faithfulness is that people can see what you put your faith in and trust in because of the desire that you have to act upon the faith that you have in that thing and the object of your faith. An example of this would be, you know, a typical, you know, example for me to give, the players of a football manager. If they have faith in the manager's tactics, they'll go all out and they'll show it whilst they play a couple of seasons ago, maybe not this year as much. But the players that play for Jürgen Klopp, they were running, breaking their backs for their manager because they had total faith and confidence in the press, the Jürgen press or Jürgen press, I can't even never say it. But the Jürgen Press. Is it the Jürgen Press? Ryan, what's it called? You know this. The Eddie Howe Press. The Eddie Howe Press. <laughs> Fair enough. The Eddie Howe Press. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, whatever. He, no, Jürgen, Jürgen Klopp. That's the guy who gave that tactic out. Eddie is copying Kim Ryan. Get it right. Okay. Um, so they trusted in him. They trusted in him. What about the rehabbing patients working on their knee? Listening to the physio's advice on strength work and putting into action the physio's plan. Um, not so much in my, my case. I haven't done my exercises for a couple of days, so I don't have total faith in my physios, which is sad. Um, and also dogs. Um, I have the, had the pleasure of walking Mungo over the last few days. He's the only dog in this. I don't know if anybody else has a dog, but um, on the farm, obviously, we have Pip and we have Fern. Three lovely dogs. Um, we can learn a lot from dogs because dogs are faithful to their master. Uh, they are faithful they cling to their master. They look up lovingly to them and they protect them at all costs. See, what characteristics and actions does a faithful human have? I know dogs aren't the greatest examples, but what characteristics and actions does a faithful human show? Um, I think these might be on the screen. On the, do you want to put them on? 
Oh, no, not yet. Hold off for a second. Um, the three are someone who is routinely dependable. Routinely dependable over and over in time. Someone you know you can rely on all of the time. And someone that will see something through to the end. Let me say them again. Someone who is routinely dependable. A bit like Matty, who never fails to turn up to a Cornerstone Collective football game. Um, someone you know you can rely on all of the time. And someone who will see something through to the end. If you want to turn there, because this is a great verse to have in front of us for the rest of this sermon. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 to 4. This is how our God is described. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He is the greatest example of faithfulness. God is described in that verse as a rock. He is routinely dependable. He never, ever lets us down. He is solid and he is sure. That's our God this afternoon, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of your life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your God is a rock. Depend on him. The Exodus story, which we did a sermon series on um, a few months back. The Israelites, they for sure knew or at least they didn't show it all the time, but they knew if they thought about it in detail that their God was a rock, that he was faithful to them because his actions showed it. His actions showed it. If you know the story of the Exodus, the Israelites who were in slavery for 400 years, they were dragged out of slavery. They were brought out of slavery by God through miracles, um, through uh, amazing works. Uh, he brought them through the Red Sea. He lovingly led them towards Sinai, gave them his covenant there. And the Israelites, what they would do is they would tell over generations to their children. They would tell this word, Hebrew word, Haggadah. They would tell their families about the faithfulness of God over and over again, uh, each generation to the next. You see, the difference is, the cool thing is about Christianity, because it's easy for a transcendent God, it's easy for an omnipotent, powerful God out there to show how sturdy and sure he is and faithful he is. Because he's a distant outside concept, outside of time and space. But the Bible tells us something about our God that is different from what the Israelites experienced. The Bible tells us about the story of a God who's so faithful to his creation. So faithful, despite our destructive, sinful ways, despite our innate nature to walk away from him. That he, from the very beginning of time, plans to come and be one of us. He planned to come and be a human being, to step into this world and show us from start to finish in the Bible that he was faithful to humanity. Um, you may have heard of something called, uh, in Christian theology, called redemption history. Redemption history. What is this? This is where we see God's faithfulness to save humanity through history in action to bring about his glory and our good. See, we have the nation of Israel that God works through. But it's a bigger picture than the people, the Israelites. It's a bigger picture than them. It's bigger than the nation of Israel in redemption history. It's all about a God who is faithful to his chosen people, us, the church, God's people, to save us, to save us from death and give us life. See, the Bible is clear that we have a God who is dependable, who is reliable, 
who is sure and he is steadfast to his will and glory. And in turn, that will bring about our good as well. Uh, and who saw the biggest, most trying task right to the end? See, from start to finish in this story, our God, he never falters, not once. I think that's incredible that we have a God who, from the beginning of time, saw a plan out, had a plan out, and he fulfilled it right to the end. He never faltered, and he was faithful from start to finish in this redemption history. In Genesis, I'm going to whiz through, I'm not going to go through everything, but we'll whiz through redemption history to give us a brief overlook of it. And with Genesis, we have the creation and then we have the fall, but there we see the promise of a serpent crusher, somebody who will come and destroy Satan and sin, the pre-incarnate son of God, before he was even a human being, as he was in heaven, he knew that he would be the serpent crusher. crusher. Noah then and his salvation, the door of the ark, an example of God's foreshadowing salvation that will come in the future where he saves Noah and protects him in the ark. Abraham next in his covenant, that he will bring blessings on the nation through Abraham and the altar of sacrifice where he prepares to sacrifice his son. But God provides a ram instead, a shadow again of the salvation that he would bring. Again, Moses and the Exodus. God never forgot his people. He removed them from slavery to free them. A shadow of that salvation in the future. And the Israelites. The Israelites being a people who constantly, if you know the story, reject God over and over again. They turn their back on him. They had create idols for them for uh, themselves. In fact, just a few days after they have left Egypt, they create a golden calf. They forget their God. They forget the faithfulness that he's shown to them. God remains faithful to them. And he promises to continue to bring about a Messiah through that people group. The perfect king through a lineage of disappointing kings that will come after. And then we see it. We see it further down the line, 2,000 years ago. God, the pre-incarnate son of God, who was at the very beginning of time, who knew the plan from start to finish, steps into this earth. He was committed to the father's will. He leaves the safe place of the throne room of heaven and he becomes a boy, a child, the incarnate son of God. And he grows in perfection, fulfilling the law of God that mankind could never live, rejecting everything, temptation, putting his way by the tempter, but pushing that back every single time. Jesus lovingly leads the disciples despite their ignorance and weakness. He remains gentle, and self-controlled as he deals with the proud question of the religious teachers. And he sets his eyes on Jerusalem and walks towards the city where he knows, he knows that his life is going to be taken from him. Jesus endures the mock trial of the Sanhedrin as they level obscene accusations his way as the created is degraded by the creator, as the creator is degraded by the created. And Jesus in humility the lashing, beating and scorn of the Roman soldiers. He picks up that cross, blood-stained, and carries it with all of his human strength up Calvary's hill for you and me. Jesus willfully lays out his palms to receive the nails of the Roman executioners. Jesus takes on fully the wrath of the heavenly father that he had never experienced separation from and in that moment is forsaken for his people that he knew before time. 
Jesus cries out that it is finished. He has been faithful from the beginning of time to the very end, achieving the glory of his father in heaven. And in that moment, the curtain is torn in two in the temple, signifying that we can now access the presence of a faithful and good God. And then Jesus is raised to life by the power of God, opening the doors for us to have rebirth and being made new creations. Our God is faithful. Our God is a faithful God. Through millennia in human history, through ages unknown to us, as he pre-existed and foreknew everything to come, he upheld his cause. He didn't stumble once. He didn't fail once to bring about his glory and the good of his chosen people. We have a good God, guys. We have a God who knows our failings, who foreknew our failings, and in faithfulness, he loved you and me. In faithfulness, he loved his church, and he persisted with us and brought about salvation for the glory of the Father and for our good. Now, what can we learn from our God then? What can we learn from our God about this? And what can we learn for ourselves about Christ's faithfulness? Firstly, what can we learn? Jesus is that sure, steadfast and faithful rock that's described in Deuteronomy 32. See, Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. This was written by Moses and the Israelites were looking forward to a Messiah, but they didn't know who this Messiah was going to be. But that's who it's describing. It's describing the son of God who will come in the future. He's the perfect example for us in how to imitate him in these fruits of the spirit in faithfulness. Jesus is the greatest example of faithfulness. If me and you want to know how to be faithful, let's look at him. So Karis, if you would, if you will put those three on the screen for me. These are the three ways that Jesus was faithful. Jesus was routinely dependable to the Father's will and his glory. Jesus was the only one to be relied upon for salvation. And Jesus saw the task set before him through to the end. Why don't we just quickly look at this first one? Jesus was routinely dependable to the Father's will and his glory. Nothing could shake Jesus' resolve for the Father's will. Nothing. He spent 40 days in the desert being tempted, having things thrown at him, gifts that the devil was throwing at him, saying, do this and I'll make you um, the, the king of the world. Um, you won't have to die. You can have these things. But because of his faithfulness, because he was a sure rock, a steadfast and sure um, saviour, we can know that he is a sure foundation to build our life upon. He's the sure foundation that we can build our life upon. We know that Jesus speaks in a parable about uh, a, a, a house that's built upon sand and a house that's built upon rock. And when the storms come of life, when those things come, which one's going to stand? It's obviously the one that's built on the rock. And the question this afternoon to you is, are you building your life upon him, first of all? Are you sat here and you're building your life upon things that are going to get washed away? When the trials of life come, are we relying on this one who has shown that he is routinely dependable over and over again? Or are we building upon things that are going to fail us, that are going to be washed away by life's trials? Jesus was routinely dependable to the Father's will and glory. The second one, Jesus was the only one to be relied upon for salvific love. 
See, we can know of his true and unwavering love for us. His love for us doesn't waver, it doesn't falter. You see, so often we can think that in our failings. We can think that if we commit that sin over and over again, or if we say that thing to somebody or whatever it might be, we might think, oh, I failed him. Does he love me? Look at how he's remained faithful to humanity time and time again after seeing their rejection of him through history's events. And yet not once does he take back that promise that was made in the beginning to Adam and Eve, that he will send somebody to deal with that problem, to deal with the problem of sin. When Adam and Eve failed in the garden, he covers them with the sheep, uh, with, with, with the coat of, of, of a sheep. And he covers them as a kind of a symbol that he would in the future cover humanity and cover their sins with his sacrifice. He didn't look back from that day. He didn't regret that decision that he ever made. He looks at you and thinks, that's the person in the future that I am going to save. And know that he won't forsake you. Not once. Jesus experienced being forsaken by his father for the church and for you. Only he can provide that love for you. And then Jesus saw the task through to the end. The task that was set before him from the beginning of time. He sees it right through to the end in his faithfulness. What does that tell us about him? We can know for certain that his promises are true and his word is sure. He's not, he never lies. He never says things that he's never going to set out to accomplish. He says something and that's a sure word. That's a surefire word. All the promises of God that you can bring to mind, he's going to, has and will accomplish them. He promised in the beginning to crush Satan, sin and death and he accomplished that on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. When God, through his son, promises to remove your sin, know for certain that that is true. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, the Israelites cry out, great is thy faithfulness. When did they say that? They said that when Jerusalem had been destroyed and they'd been dragged from their homeland and taken to Babylon. But the Israelites, they appealed to the characteristic of God, of his faithfulness. They appealed to that and they rested on that in the worst moment, one of the worst moments in their history. And I would encourage us all this afternoon to appeal to the character of God, of his faithfulness, when you're not certain of his faithfulness. Appeal to it. See, we're different to the Israelites. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to save human beings from their sin. He saw the task right through to the end. So be encouraged, know for certainty of God's faithfulness to you. Even when you're tempted to despair by your sin, as we sang in the first song, Christ Jesus has paid for your forgiveness with his blood. He is faithful. He's routinely dependable. He's the one to be relied on for salvation. And he saw the task right through to the end. And as we've seen and heard over the previous weeks in the sermon series, the Holy Spirit enables us to imitate that Jesus. How awesome is that? That we can imitate his faithfulness, that we can be routinely dependable, that we can uh, finish the task that's set before us. We can do those things because the Holy Spirit, that is God, enables us to imitate the perfect example of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus this afternoon, he has installed that desire in you. 
He's installed the desire in you to be faithful. And that's brought on by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, it tells us that he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Other versions, versions of the, the Bible say that the Holy Spirit has been deposited in us, which I quite like. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We are guaranteed his people. That will never change because Christ completed, accomplished what he needed to on that cross. So what does it look like for us to imitate then in application? What does it look like for us to imitate Christ's faithfulness to us? It looks like those exact same things that we said before in Christ's faithfulness. It means to be routinely dependable to the glory of God, like Christ was. To be someone the world can rely on. To bring the message of the gospel of love to them. These are not snappy like Neil's, I apologise. And to see your walk and run through to the end, to the glory of God. So in application, the first one, be routinely dependable to the glory of God. See, in Christ's resolve, we should find a resolve that imitates him. He was resolved to the Father's glory. We should be too. We should be resolved to the Father's glory. Build your life around the objective of God's glory. Build your life upon that objective. There ain't anything better than that. There isn't a better objective in this life. A higher salary, a new car, whatever those things might be. Worthless in comparison to being a part of the pursuit of God's glorification on this earth. Over and over again, Jesus showed in his life that he was sure-footed and certain of his commitment to the Father's will. Can we say that about ourselves? Nothing else truly matters. Over and over again, we should appeal to ourselves to die to ourselves, to live for God. That's a challenge, isn't it? In the world that we live in of self, um, self-glorification, in living for self, that's such a challenge just to have to watch the television and uh, you know, everything that's going on around the world and the people around us, even in the roads around, roads around us and the things that people are pursuing. Maybe some things are good. The reality is nothing compares to being a person who lives to the glory of God in heaven. So we are called to live for another. We're called to be like Jesus and live for the glorification of God. So be routinely dependable to him. The second one, be someone the world can rely on to bring the message of the gospel of love to them. And we do that in words. We do that in deeds. We also do that in our mannerisms as well. The world's relying on us to bring Jesus to them, to bring that message of salvation to the people around us. Speak of his faithfulness in words. Tell people. Show his faithfulness in deeds. Love people around you. Do things for people. Show them of God's faithfulness to you in your actions to them and in your mannerisms as well, in the, your, the way that you, you look, your face, um, even in the sad moments in your life, you should be able to share the joy of God through those difficult times. Let people know of his faithfulness to humanity by being faithful to them in your everyday life. Jesus is a God who gave his entirety to see humanity's salvation and we should be the same. We should give everything to the people around us. We should be faithful to them and faithful to God's glory. The final two fruits, which were uh, gentleness 
and self-control. They're countercultural, aren't they? They're things that we don't see in everybody's lives. Yes, people can be gentle. Yes, people can be self-controlled. But true gentleness and true self-control, they come from uh, a faithfulness to the Father in heaven. They imitate Jesus. See, Jesus being the Son of God and in human flesh, in his perfection, he's the antithesis. I always struggle with that word, but I said, think I said it correctly. He is the antithesis of what broken humanity is. He's the complete opposite. And in his gentleness, in his self-control, we see perfect gentleness and we see perfect self-control. And us being Im- image bearers of Jesus Christ, we should be gentle and we should be self-controlled. And just quickly, an application, and uh, we're not going to spend as much time on these ones. Gentleness, how can we be gentle to the glory of God? See, gentleness is very close to patience. We've had that one, we had that one a few weeks ago. But I suppose the slight difference is in gentleness, it's to respond to situations without aggression. In times of trial, criticism, hostility, but instead meet it with a softness, meet it with control of the tongue and a strong handle of the temper to the glory of God. Where does Jesus show this? He shows it most effectively in a gentle spirit when he's in front of the Sanhedrin, when he's in front of the high priest in that mock trial. And whilst he sees the worst of human emotions displayed around him, he responds with gentleness and he responds with meekness. There's great power in that act that he did there. Instead of responding with fiery words and damnation upon those people, He responds with meekness and he responds with gentleness. See, society sees that as weak, but it's not. It's quite the opposite. Jesus could have destroyed these people with his words, but there was far more power in his gentleness in that moment. The way he persisted with them, it stunned him and it's countercultural. And his gentleness is a great example for us to follow. I also love the way that he responds to Nicodemus. I'd be really frustrated in that conversation if I knew what Jesus knew and I was trying to get that across and he just couldn't get it. I'd be really frustrated, but he isn't. He's gentle with him and he points him to Jesus and in application to challenge and to encourage us. What areas of your life, what people, what places are you prone to aggression, prone to spiteful, defensive responses even? Where do you need to call on the Holy Spirit's help and guidance to show you gentleness in those moments? Is it a work colleague? There's people flashing through my mind right now. Is it your commute to work? I'm awful. I'm driving to work. I need to calm. I need to just calm down as I drive to work. I'm the worst at this. A non-believing friend, maybe, who for a long time has heard the message plenty of times and just doesn't get it. Family members, maybe as well, who've heard the message over and over again and you're coming to the end of your earthly patience and gentleness. What areas do we need the Holy Spirit's guidance in this? He's there to walk with us step by step through these moments. My question, how can we be more gentle to the glory of God? And self-control. Jesus most effectively shows his self-control as he experiences the cross. Jesus could have lashed out at the mockers who were throwing insults at him. Jesus could have twitched and tensed his muscles in protest as the Roman soldiers stretch out his arms and hands to receive the nails. Jesus could have literally removed himself from that cross in that moment. Every human fibre in him is calling out for him to do it. But Jesus 
had full control of his tongue, his flesh, his mind, and his soul in that moment. And we have so much to thank him for, for that. So much to thank him for, that he was able to control himself in that moment for us. That he didn't for a moment forget his faithfulness to the Father's glory. Those temptations did not trump the goal that was set before him, God's glory and the church's salvation. What areas of our life, what people, what places are we prone to a slip of the tongue? And James speaks in the book of James of the fire that our tongues can kindle and our tongues can be really powerful, can't they? They can be destructive. They can also bring blessing as well. And maybe it's a certain weakness in the flesh that we are prone to. What are they? We need to identify them. Jesus gained control of self-control through these things by a number of things. And they're things that we can work on and we can progress in. And they are to study, to pray, to fast, and to have community around us. He's the person to imitate. So let's imitate him. He was often found in the early hours praying to his father. His disciples would leave, um, maybe get up at a, probably an early hour, they thought. <laughs> they probably got up at like maybe seven o'clock or something and found that Jesus had been praying three hours or something like that before. We're not Jesus. We probably can't do that. But we need to be found praying. We need to be found calling out and imploring our father to help us through the day, through every hour. He was often found reading the Torah and teaching it. And conversing about it as well. Um, I love GC. But how often do I instigate conversations about what I've read? Um, how often do I um, chat um, to the lads at football about, um, about the things that I've learned, about the goodness of God, to talk to them about it? He fasted in the desert as well. I'm not, there's no deserts around here. Um, but he knew his scripture and he knew how to combat temptation in that moment. He fasted. He took time to focus on what his purpose was in those 40 days. And he had a community of people around him that loved the same thing as him, um, that wanted to see the glory of God brought about on this earth. And we have this too, this blessed community here uh, that we can, we can grow with one another and we can share uh, in trying to gain self-control of the passions of this world and also gain self-control of serving God. We have this blessing of community. We can fast. We can read, not the Torah, but the Bible. And we can, um, we can pray to him. These are ways that we can gain self-control. And my question is, how can, we, how can we be self-controlled to the glory of God? In what ways can we control ourselves to God's glory? Because we need to, because we're still broken and we're still human beings and we haven't reached the other side of glory yet. And it's by these ways that gentleness and self-control, uh, we will show faithfulness to God, to this unbelieving generation around us. See, these are the things that make us distinct, that make us different to the people out there. And they need to see it in us. They need to see that we love God and that we're faithful to him through the way that we control ourselves and the way that we are gentle with people in situations that other people might lash out. How do we respond in a different way? So in closing, and the final thing that we can do to imitate our saviour, Jesus Christ, is to see your walk to glory through to the end. To see it through to the end. So thinking back to our pair of Paralympic runners at the start, David never gave up when things got difficult. 
when he wasn't walking in step with Jerome, he didn't quit. He recognised the errors and he took another step forward with David and he leant on him for guidance. See, the Holy Spirit is residing in us. At this very moment, as you sit here, as I stand here, the Holy Spirit is here. God is with us. He will be faithful to us to the end, even when we make mistakes, even when we do lash out, even when I do on the commute to work, um, shout something at the back. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. But, you know, mutter something that I shouldn't. Um, even when uh, we're with that family member who um, just won't accept Christ. He's with us in those moments when we slip. He's faithful to us. In our failure of these fruits of the Spirit, he's faithful to us. He remains faithful in his death, his defeat of death. And by rising from the grave, he was faithful to the end. And we can imitate him in that. We can be faithful to the end as well. And the Holy Spirit's going to be with us through to the end to run and finish well. And that's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want. We want to we finish well. We want to finish this race. Uh, the race that Paul mentions um, in, in his writings we, we have that race in front of us. We have that running track in front of us, or more so a marathon. And it's a long race. It's a difficult race, and this is a path that no, nobody would choose. And yet we've been blessed because the Holy Spirit pointed out to us at one point and removed the scales from our eyes that this is the best race to run. The best race to run. And by opening our eyes to that and sealing us with the promised Holy Spirit, he promises to bring these fruits out in us. He promises to bring about gentleness, promises to bring about self-control and he will make you faithful to the end so just this afternoon let's be encouraged by that um, that he will bring faithfulness about in all of us if he has sealed you with the promise of the holy spirit he has died for you he has taken every consequence of your sin away from you he foreknew before time all of the mistakes that you would make as a christian and yet he loves you and he will love you and he will bring us home one day. And we have the great opportunity to show this faithfulness to the world around us. And that's what we should do this week. And I pray, um, just as we close, that we would do that. That we would be faithful to uh, the, the path that he has set out before us. And that people would see the difference in us. And that people would be brought to a knowledge of Christ through these countercultural uh, fruits of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Father, thank you for... Um, these fruits of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would change us, that we would be faithful, that we would be gentle, we would be self-controlled, not for our glory, but because of what you've done for us, Lord, because of what you have um, brought about uh, in us through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and I pray that as we leave here, you would cause us to imitate him, to be more like him. Again, not for our glory, but for your Son's glory. Amen.